Angela, thank you so much for your testimony this morning. Your story helps to build our faith that God is with us in the midst of whatever we walk through. Um, His compassion, his love for you in the midst of suffering is there for all of us. Let's pray before we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you journey with us through each experience of life, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that we can count on your love and your comforting presence to be with us, whether we walk through on the mountains or through the valleys or in the desert. Lord, as we read and discuss your word this morning, we invite you to work in our hearts and shape us. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and give us fresh understanding of what you're saying to us individually and corporately from this passage this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're continuing in our study of Luke and Acts. So far in Luke, we've seen Jesus move about Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. And he's proclaimed that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. His mission is to bring good news to the poor, to bring freedom for the captives and to the oppressed, and to give sight to the blind. God has come to restore his people. In the Sermon on the Plain, which we have been walking through over the last few weeks, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom and just what that means in our lives. In this morning's passage, the sermon is finished, and Jesus has moved on. So let's read together in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Uh, You can take a look in your pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 838, or it will also be on the screens. Um, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion said to his friends, sorry, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. Then that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So on the ser- with the Sermon on the Plain complete, 
Jesus has now moved on to the town of Capernaum, which sits on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 7 begins a section in Luke in which Luke records a number of interactions that Jesus had with the people. In the next couple chapters, he illustrates these encounters through a number of episodes which highlight how various people and groups of people responded to Jesus as he continues his ministry. These interactions also highlight Jesus' authority over sickness and over sin, that he has come with the restoration power of God and has authority to reverse the effects of sin and sickness. Jesus' teaching on the plain and his next encounters are not isolated incidences. They're all connected. They kind of flow together from one to the other. So as we consider this encounter with the centurion, it's helpful to remember Jesus' teaching. We've learned from Jesus that the ways of the kingdom are not the ways of the world, and that his disciples are invited into a different way of living, a way of love and grace. And over the past few weeks, we've discovered that God's Spirit empowers us as believers to live a life that is characterized by loving one's enemies, forgiving others, and not judging or fault-fighting in one another. Last week, as Pastor Andrew walked us through the fourth and final part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, we learned that Jesus taught those in the crowd and us to discern ourselves and others by looking at what we say and what we do and see that they line up, that our words are gracious and our deeds reflect that we've put our faith in Jesus and we walk in obedience to his teaching by the power of the Spirit living in us. So let's look at verses 2 and 3. Here we see that Jesus now interacts with a delegation sent by the centurion who requests that he come and heal his servant who's on the verge of death. At this point, we get a first glimpse into the character of the centurion. We're told that he highly values the servant, and that's why he wants him to be healed. It was likely that this servant was actually a slave owned by this man. But the implication in the language here reveals that he was not simply protecting his assets. He sincerely had a compassion for his servant. While we find out at the end of this passage that Jesus does miraculously heal the servant, the theme that Luke wants us to focus on is the faith of the centurion. The healing of the servant simply provides the framework for what Luke wants to highlight. Many of us are probably not too familiar with the military ranks of today. I know I'm not, let alone the meaning of the word centurion. So a little background. A centurion was a soldier who was typically in command of about 100 other soldiers. He was a middle-ranking officer, and this particular one was stationed in Capernaum. He would have been literate, able to read and write orders, and he would have been paid well, so he was probably pretty wealthy. He would have received his orders from a commander who was probably stationed in Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles away. And he had soldiers who would report to him. 
These soldiers would have been mostly responsible for performing tasks locally that were mostly related to peacekeeping. And the centurion was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was an outsider looking in at the Jewish world. Verse 3 says that the centurion had heard of Jesus. We're not told how this happened, but somehow he'd heard. I can imagine members of his household may have been part of those who were listening as Jesus taught on the plane. Or perhaps he had witnessed Jesus healing someone and spread the news of the rad this radical new teacher throughout the town and around the centurion's household. So when the servant becomes sick, he thinks, okay, I'm going to send a, a delegation to Jesus and ask that he heal my servant. You may have also read this account in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 2 records this episode, but he leaves the messengers out and has the centurion talking directly to Jesus. In Jesus' day, it was common for someone in the rank of a centurion to send intermediaries on his behalf rather than go himself. The messengers then would be giving the message as if they were the ones who had sent it. Remember, this was an oral society in which history and important messages would be memorized and then conveyed with accuracy. It wasn't like us playing that broken telephone game. You know that game, the, the broken telephone? Has anyone played it? You have a message that starts with one person and they whisper from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, and then at the end, you inevitably have a confused and muddled message, and then everyone just laughs. This wasn't like that. People in that time were much better at delivering accurate messages than we are. They began memorizing their history at a very young age, so this group would have gotten the message correct. New Testament scholars tell us that because sending messengers was considered virtually the same as a centurion talking directly to Jesus himself, Matthew simply chose to leave that detail out. This isn't unusual for Matthew. He is known to have frequently abbreviated his, his episodes and made them a little shorter. But Luke includes this detail in, as it highlights the centurion's character, his faith, and also the nature of the relationship that he had with the people he was in authority over. Commentator N.T. Wright notes that it was common for soldiers in the centurion's position to despise and hate the local people he was working among and to regard them as an inferior race. But this man didn't. He was different. Verse 5 says, This man loved the Jewish nation and had taken part in building their synagogue. Instead of hating his enemies, he loved them. And the word love here is the same word, agape, that Jesus used when he taught his disciples to love their enemies in chapter 6, verse 27. The centurion agaped the people, a love of action that is not dependent on feelings. And one of the actions of his love was for the people was to build their synagogue. The word built in this verse, too, is the same word Jesus uses in chapter 6, verse 48, in describing the wise builder who builds his foundation upon the rock. 
It seems that in the example of the centurion, Luke is presenting us with a model of someone who was doing what Jesus was teaching, loving his enemies and building his life on the truths of Jesus, a foundation of rock. His deeds matched his words. The centurion may also have been acting in a culturally sensitive way by choosing to send Jewish leaders to a Jewish teacher. But clearly the centurion's character and way of living had made an impact on these local Jewish elders, so much so that they actually seemed to be lobbying on his behalf. Verse 4 says, They pleaded earnestly for Jesus to come, and they described the centurion as, having some, as someone who deserved to have Jesus come. Their lobbying seems to have effect, and Jesus goes with them. And agreeing to go with them, Jesus is crossing a couple of boundaries. He's crossing an ethnic boundary between Jews and Gentiles. And he's crossing a social boundary between the rich and the poor. Jesus is once again demonstrating the wide inclusivity of the kingdom of God. The way of salvation is open to all, no matter your ethnicity or your social status. The good news is for everyone. Luke is also using this passage to foreshadow his account in Acts 10 of another believing centurion, Cornelius, and his encounter with the apostle Peter, which begins Peter's mission to the Gentiles. So Jesus sets out with the messengers, but before he can reach the centurion's house, a second delegation, friends of the centurion, who were likely Gentiles, meet Jesus. Is that the right verse? Yep, okay. Their message from the centurion in the second part of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 indicates his sense of unworthiness to be in the presence of Jesus. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. He then illustrates his understanding of Jesus' authority by relating it to his own role as a man in authority. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. That one, come, he comes. I say, do this, and the servant does it. The centurion's words reveal that he believes that Jesus can heal simply by a command and from a distance. Since he is a person who is under authority and can use his delegated authority to give orders that others must obey, he believes that Jesus, being under the authority of God, can also give orders that will be obeyed. All that is needed is that Jesus just say the word and his servant will be healed. While the Jewish leaders have been gushing about the centurion's good works, Jesus draws attention instead to the centurion's faith. And he does so with an emotional response. He's amazed by the great faith of this Gentile. We typically hear of other people's amazement after interacting with Jesus. But here, Jesus is amazed. The only other time this word is used 
to describe Jesus' reaction is in Matthew's parallel account of this passage and in Mark 6.6, 6, where Jesus is amazed at the unbelief, the lack of faith that he encountered in the town of Nazareth. And Jesus contrasts the centurion's faith with what he's seen, or hasn't seen, so far in Israel, among the very people that might be expected to believe in his power and in his authority. So Jesus responds, and the centurion's servant is healed. Jesus described the centurion's faith as great faith. So what was it about his faith that amazed Jesus so much. I believe that we can see the nature of the centurion's faith by taking a look at his approach to Jesus. First of all, the centurion asked. He made a specific, direct request that Jesus heal his servant. This man was a man who was in command of many other men he would have been accustomed to giving orders and making demands of people. But when he approaches Jesus, he humbly makes his request, not a demand, recognizing his unworthiness in the presence of this man who is God incarnate. He approaches Jesus with a bold humility. His humble request also reveals that he honored Jesus' will in the situation. He knew he could ask Jesus to heal a servant, but he really didn't know if Jesus would respond with a yes or with a no. His request honored Jesus as a person with his own mind and his own will, who was free to choose how he would respond. Some of you will know that in addition to my role here, I am also a trained psychotherapist. And as a therapist, I have to say that the centurion displayed a style of communication that is called assertiveness. I teach this to people all the time. <laughs> this style has been identified as the most helpful in building relationships and getting along well with others. Other communication styles are passive or aggressive, or a combination, a passive-aggressive style. Um, but communicating assertively means that you present your request, your need or your want, to the other, and then you let go of the outcome. It means recognizing that the other person has their own mind and their own will, as well as their own needs and wants, but makes, and it makes space for them to freely choose how they're going to respond. It's a vulnerable way of communicating. We're revealing our need and our want. We're putting it out there. That's vulnerable. And it's especially vulnerable when we can't anticipate the response. And if the other person responds with a no, we're challenged to not take offense or to force our will on them, but to honor their will. And with the Lord, sometimes he does say no, or not yet, to our requests. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, we learn that the Apostle Paul asked the Lord a number of times for the thorn in his flesh, whatever that was, to be removed. But God said no, saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And instead of removing the thorn, God granted Paul the power and the grace to live with it. 
Secondly, the centurion approached Jesus believing that he had the authority to accomplish what he had requested, a belief founded on the truth of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 45, that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What we say reveals our deepest beliefs. And the centurion's approach to Jesus, his request, revealed that he believed in his heart that Jesus had authority over sickness and could make his servant well again. N.T. Wright says of this centurion, he had grasped the very center of the Jewish faith, that the one true God, the God of Israel, was the sovereign one, the Lord of heaven and earth, and that this one true God was personally present and active in Jesus of Nazareth. The centurion got it. He understood the truth of who Jesus was in a way that astonished Jesus. We don't know what had led to his faith. Perhaps he had heard Jesus teach or had seen him heal others, or perhaps he simply knew of him by reputation. But the Spirit of God revealed to him the truth of who Jesus was, and he believed. And I can imagine that after Jesus healed his servant, the centurion, the the servant himself, and all in his household, not to mention the two delegations sent by the centurion, were probably telling their friends and their family and the whole town about the healing miracle Jesus had done. It's important to testify to one another about how Jesus is working in our lives. Revelation 12:11 says, They overcame him, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We overcome the lies of the enemy, that God is not with us, or he doesn't love us, or he's forgotten us, when we remember his goodness to us, because when hard times come, we can forget. In the Old Testament, the Israelites repeatedly rehearsed their history of God's acts of faithfulness in their lives, how he rescued them from Egypt, how he supplied manna in the desert, how he empowered them to move into and occupy the promised land that he gave them, just to name a few. Our testimonies of Jesus' power working in our lives reminds us of who God is, his power and his authority, and that he is living and active in our lives today. And the Lord uses these stories to build our faith, just as Angelo's story has done this morning. In Jesus' encounter with the centurion, he responds to the centurion's faith by healing his servant. In the next passage, which we'll look at next week, and Pastor Joy will walk us through, Jesus resurrects a widow's son. And in this instance, he heals the son out of his compassion for the widow. There's no mention of her faith. Jesus is not formulaic. This isn't a passage meant to provide instructions on how to get Jesus to heal someone in your life. Rather, it's an invitation to consider how we approach God and how we respond to him. Do we put our faith in him? Do we believe he is who he says he is, Lord over heaven and earth? And do our words and actions reflect this? Perhaps Jesus is inviting us to approach him differently. The centurion had the advantage of approaching Jesus in person. We have the opportunity to approach Jesus in prayer. 
take a moment and think, how do I pray? What does it sound like when I pray? Sometimes we come to God and we pray, you know, Lord, I would really like it if you would do this. Or if it's not too much trouble, would you do this particular thing in my life? I know it seems kind of difficult, maybe a bit impossible. We can be a bit wishy-washy in our requests. Wishy-washy just means kind of half-hearted and passive. The Lord challenged me on how I was approaching him some time ago when I was praying for my husband to find a job. He'd been unemployed for a while, and as the months stretched on with no prospects in sight, I began to get very discouraged. It seemed impossible that he would ever get a job. And my prayers began to get wishy-washy. One day, as I was reading in Matthew 9, the words of Jesus jumped off the page at me. In this passage, two blind men had asked Jesus for healing. But it was Jesus' response to them that jumped off the page at me and straight into my heart. Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? In that moment, I knew Jesus was challenging me to approach him differently. With the belief in the truth that he has authority over heaven and earth and over any unemployment situation. And just as his disciples had done in Luke 17, I prayed, Oh Lord, increase my faith. Jesus uses every event in our lives to grow us into mature believers and to draw us deeper into relationship with himself. He desires that we become believers who listen to what he says and then put his words into practice. The Christian life is a journey, and God works on us daily to transform us, leading us into lives of increased holiness and into bearing the image of Jesus more and more each day. And we don't do this alone. God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit living within us to empower us to obey his words and change us from the inside out. What are you hearing from God this morning? What do you sense he's saying to you about the way you approach him? Maybe he's asking you to approach him differently. Or perhaps Jesus is asking you to come to him for the first time and place your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. However you sense God speaking to you, take time to talk to him about it. If you'd like someone to pray with you at the end of the service, there will be people here at the front to do so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have listened to the story of the centurion's faith this morning, we echo the cry that your disciples expressed. Lord, increase our faith. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to approach you with faith, great faith, with humble boldness and a confident belief that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler over all of heaven and earth and over every aspect in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, would you please come? <clears throat>